Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast series, What About Us? Cultural Awareness in Clinical Psychology. You're joined here today by Afsana. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Gloria Unsaid, who's a clinical psychologist working in London. She talks about how she works with refugee and asylum seeker children and discusses concepts and methods she's used when adapting therapy for young people. So things like play and acting. She also talks about how she manages group dynamics when working with interpreters and also young people who faced severe trauma. So let's have a listen to what Glorian had to say. Hi Glorian, thank you so much for joining us today. So before we start the interview, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, um, so my name is Glorian I'm a clinical psychologist. And I work in the NHS in children and young people settings, the children and young people affected by um, trauma. Mm-hmm. And I have a special interest in working with unaccompanied refugee minors, so that's child refugees who have arrived without their parents. Um, and I'm in the process of setting up a service within the third sector for this client group. Right, okay, that sounds really interesting. So what brought about your interest in working with refugee children? Uh, in terms of my interest working in London, I really enjoyed working with people from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's always something to learn from people who might have different experiences. Okay. Uh, I, I really enjoyed working with young people. And when it comes and working with trauma as an opportunity to help people recover and think about getting getting a life back that might have been taken away from them due to, this, due to different circumstances. Right. And for me, some of this ended up developing circumstantially. So it was from a client group I grew to work with while on um, clinical training, mm-hmm. but uncovered uh, quite a passion and thinking about what it means to, to meet a young person where they're at when lots of different circumstances are going on. And what I was really struck by this experience was how a lot of our regular um, thinking within psychology can still be applicable and helpful with just a few tweaks for different people. Right, okay. So uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? What what kind of, um, have you got any examples that you could give uh, with regards to that? Yeah, well, I guess what the starting point was start trying to formulate what what is different mm. for these young people's needs. So what we, what we know is that um, unaccompanied refugee children or unaccompanied asylum-seeking children, mm-hmm. generally would have had long journeys, okay. generally on their own or in very abusive circumstances, um, working with traffickers, um, being exploited by traffickers and smugglers, right. and have had experienced a lot of different trauma events. Mm-hmm. But that journey, as a starting point, has a bit of an impact on people's biology, so thinking about their circadian rhythm, that they sleep, but also their... Um, diet and metabolism, which we know impact their emotion regulation. These are also young people who were separated from their parents and experienced that loss, but who who were still adolescents, Mm. who were still young people finding themselves and figuring out who they were, then in an entirely different culture to what they might have been used to. 
um, from a kind of more political position, and my cities lack a lot of spaces and control over their circumstances. There's a lot of social stresses to think about, mm-hmm. and a lot of young people might have had really negative experiences with authority services yeah. um, or services which represent authority. There was a lot of mistrust to think about, um, and something which I've really been struck by was um, young, young people not really having that routine of, if you're too hurt, you go to the doctor, which is something I think we take for granted in Western culture. So finding a starting point to think about, well, how are we going to make the concept of mental health as we think about it in, in our profession become meaningful to people who have ex- were experiencing ongoing stress, but mm-hmm. also had had recently experienced quite severe trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what helped was breaking it down into each of those areas and kind of turning the way we try to approach our service, not on its head, because we still saw people in the clinic for the most part, um, but the way we reached out to people was a bit different. So um, within the camp of what we'd consider cognitive behaviour therapy, so the idea that our thoughts, feelings, behaviour and bodily reactions are are kind of connected and influence each other, Mm -hmm. um, we set up, so myself and my colleagues set up a group for young people, um, which helped to address some of the loss and isolation you might be experiencing as a teenager in a new country without any family. Yeah. Um, and we thought this was a way to help with a bit of gentle engagement with services so you're not sitting in a room with a really scary, powerful-looking professional and being asked to tell, everything, tell them everything that's happened to you. Yeah. Um, we thought about what they might need as young people, so we delivered interventions um, or metaphors in a bit more of a playful way. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to bring psychoeducation to life um, when thinking about stress and uh, impact it can, the cumulative impact it can have on us. We brought a bucket in um, to bring to bring a metaphor of the feeling of overwhelmed to life, filled it with water and started throwing stones in it to represent different stressors. Right. Um, and thinking about the lows of that stress which we thought, and young people who remembered it months later, confirmed the uh, health of that just made it memorable, but also engaging and fun, and people remember the message that was attached to it. Um, so offering things in a bit more of an informal way was one of the first uh, adaptations we made for this particular client group. Yeah. Now, when you know, people are coming from different countries from all over the world, mm-hmm. and might have only been here a few months, um, it, their development of English was still limited. And right. I, my my Arabic, my Pashto, my Farsi, my Tigrinya is really limited. So mm-hmm. I needed an interpreter, right. um, a few interpreters to help deliver the the service so we ran the group with interpreters mm-hmm. um which so most groups we had between three and five interpreters to support our young people okay um and to support us um delivering the the, the information because mm-hmm. while we made it playful we were also introducing different bits of psychoeducation and um, hopefully skills to help people manage the, the different 
they were facing, which we know have an, um, an emotional impact. Mm. Um, and something we felt was quite key was offering training to our interpreters, but as um, practicing psychologists, to really be mindful of how much content we were putting in. Mm. So um, where we met for an hour, I think we prepared about 20 minutes of content. Okay. Um, to just get one or two key messages through every day, every every time we met. Um, does that make sense? Would it be helpful yeah. for me to say a bit more on interpreters? Or um, does that sound like enough for now? No, no, you can um, you can de- definitely go ahead and speak about that because I, I will sort of touch up on that as well. So, yeah, I think it would be good for you to um, tell us a little bit more about how you managed that situation then, you know, having, you know, three to four um, interpreters um, in the room with um, such a diverse clientele. How did you manage that, that dynamic? Yeah, well, we tried to be as selective as we could be with the interpreters we invited to be part of the group. Okay. And as much as possible, trying to keep the same interpreters coming back once right. they had received maybe a 20-minute training session with us and they became used to the way the group was delivered. We right. found that quite helpful. Mm-hmm. And it also helped um, keep the relationship of the group um, a bit more unified, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Um, so young people also got to know their interpreters and that sort of created a sense of friendliness. Mm-hmm. Um, we listened to what our interpreters felt they needed and the feedback they got um, or they had to give on the little bits of Google Translate we might have done mm-hmm. um, and thinking together how we can facilitate it. And then sometimes having to be a bit more assertive with the way we would facilitate the group and really actually having to go, okay, I'm going to stop you talking so that everyone else can translate and then I'm going to listen to this person and then we're going to stop. So it was in the group rules or group agreements to try and um, for only one person to talk at a time and for everything to get interpreted, even if there's the assumption that something's were understood Um, and even conversations between young people. um, If 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 there were two young people who spoke the same language, we... And made sure that that still got interpreted to the rest of the group, so nothing was was lost as much as possible. And it, it worked most of the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and I think people were quite understanding and flex- and were were very happy to have a space where they could express themselves because we found that access to interpreters was a bit limited for young people in their day to day life. Right. That I mean, that sounds amazing that you were able to sort of manage. Um, you know, having so many interpreters and then using this methods uh, to try and get all that information. Uh, so that sounds absolutely amazing. Well done on that. Um, I just want to quickly touch on something. You know, you talked about um, how you sort of adapted some of your ways of um, delivering CBT, for example, to um, these young people. Um, can you give me some examples of how did you, how did you make those adaptations sure. for those children? So... And some of this came from my practice with children and young people in general and lessons I learned from, from other people as I went along. <laughs> but for example, when offering some psychoeducation about anxiety and the impact it has on the body, mm-hmm. we put a few giant sheets of paper together, had the young person lie down and we drew around his body right. um, and then put all the symptoms um, on this giant piece of paper with everyone kind of stood around it. Yeah, okay. Um, and having um, 
making that be quite collaborative and sort of getting different bits of ideas from people going, mm-hmm. yeah, and what happens to your heart? And how, how do, do you feel hot? Do you feel cold? Um, and that, that was all we did in one session, but mm-hmm. sort of really bringing to life about what that's like. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we did a fair bit of acting uh, and maybe sort of bringing certain sort of externalizing some mm-hmm. Some principles, so externalize creating a character around the fear response, right. um, and sort of thinking, and um, there's the, the fight or flight concept within some psychoeducation around anxiety. Um, so it it meant sort of acting out um, adrenaline and sort of really fighting and, or running around the room to really right. try to make things that no matter what language you speak yeah. or how how. I didn't want things to feel like a classroom as well because um, yeah, uh, there's the temptation to switch off and people's concentration might have been quite limited. Mm-hmm. So trying to make things quite quite memorable, attention grabbing, and, and clear. Yeah. Um, those I think were among the more memorable. Getting very silly um, and thinking about um, extending some metaphors which involve fight, flight, and um, free freeze and faint, um, facing in the middle of the room and having people remember that and call me on it yeah. quite a few weeks or months later. Um, but and really, and I think something that can get lost when thinking about um, and the company of refugee children is that they are children yeah. um, and this is giving a chance for things to, to feel a bit fully and, and meet them at, at a level which then things were quite meaningful. Um, when doing psychoeducation around emotions, um, we also try to include characters which young people might recognise. Mm-hmm. So thinking about footballers showing emotions, um, or sort of people in, in relative public life, which felt a bit more universal rather than um, things which we might be more accustomed to within the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think also meant, hopefully meant that young people could connect to it a bit more. Right. So then how did you, so obviously because you said that, you know, you had um, a, a diverse range of um clients coming and seeing you so you know the the young people um so what did you have to do to prepare for that so obviously I'm assuming you've had to do a bit of your own research to try and find out about these different cultures yeah and I think some of it came from listening to the young people themselves right okay. and holding us as a as their therapists the psychologists they were working with mm-hmm. and even even if it was just within the group being really curious right um about what what their culture meant mm-hmm. and what things were like for them. Mm-hmm. Um, we we didn't, definitely didn't become experts. I don't know everything there is to know about different cultural groups, but sometimes people, when, for example, when learning about, when thinking about emotion, mm-hmm. we would put a picture down to represent it, but then ask what this, these, if there were similar words in their culture right. and what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and when thinking about values, so a concept within acceptance and commitment therapy, we, to, to elicit people's values, we asked, we asked people to talk about someone they admired, um, which mm-hmm. then allowed people to talk a bit more about 
someone they knew within their day-to-day life now or someone they knew um, in their in their life before they left their, their country. Right, okay. um, And that was also a nice way to get a window into people's lives. One of the things we we made quite explicit was that the group wasn't wasn't there for people to talk about what happened to them, which I think okay. reassured quite a lot of people who had been asked quite a lot um, what happened, why did you leave why did you leave your country right. um, for safeguarding reasons or for part of their home office application. Um, but we didn't want this, this group to feel like something like that as well right so i mean that's that's really good um uh, an interesting point as well that you've just raised there regarding you know some of these concerns that uh people from diverse communities may have so what was it like getting access to the young people i mean how were they referred to you um or how, you know how did that come sure. about and um, i think say if i was working with a young person from this country mm-hmm. um i would be working with what we we call their system and okay. um, so the, the the networks are around. So for some people, that might be their carers. It might be their carers. Okay. For these young people, it would have been their social workers or their key workers. A lot of young people lived in hostels okay. and had a named key worker who would kind of be their their day to day support person. Right. Um. We we got we got to know the the hostels and the key workers in our lo- in the area we were supporting. Mm-hmm. We visited those hostels a few times. Um, and sometimes young people got to know us through there. Um, and what we do is um, some people would still come in for an, assess- an initial assessment to identify if there were any um, mental health needs. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes some people heard about the group and wanted to just come to our group. Yes. So we would offer a meeting with the young person and would really encourage um, a key worker or a social worker to attend with them to help them feel a bit more safe. Yeah. So, so you, um, sorry. Um, and we asked some really explicit conversations about how they felt about coming, right. anything they thought might get in the way with them coming, um, and what we could do to help if they felt a bit wobbly coming in. Um, we tried to be quite proactive and assertive to send um, a text message every week reminding right. people that the group was still on, using really simple, simple words mm-hmm. and trying to say but group tomorrow thinking of you hope to see you there and <laughs> and really trying to form, create a relationship um with young people and what we found which kind of gave me a bit of confidence that what we did work was that once young people came to one or two groups they kept coming That's and this group ran for about 32 weeks wow. and their average attendance was 65 percent across the whole group that's that's amazing that was going to actually be my next question asking how long did these sessions last for and um yeah. you know how what was the sort of success rate of those yeah um we we measure we try to we look at engagement as one of the bigger outcomes yeah. these were young people who traditionally um it was they struggled to engage with services the services perhaps were less accessible to them mm-hmm. um and we also used um, a questionnaire called the, the Miller Rating Scales for groups, mm-hmm. which um, has a, like a little ruler, and we used um, a younger version of the scale to make it more accessible for, for, from a language perspective, where there was um, a smiley face on one end and an unhappy face on the other end. 
and asking people every week to rate how happy or unhappy they were with what what we covered in the group, how the group was delivered. Um, and on average, the, we kind of converted the, the, the marks on the rulers to, to percentages. And the, the mean percentage rating for how young people felt the group was for listening was 97%. Well, that's amazing. Um, how important the topic was was 95%. Right. The content um, was 96%. And the overall approach um, was 94%. And we didn't just look at those figures in on our own at the end of the group. We kind of looked at young people were filling them out. <clears throat> and if there was something the in-person was less happy with, we, we asked quite... We tried to be quite humble and said, what can we do different next time? Mm. What would you like us to cover? What Was there too much talking, too little talking? Would you like more games? Um, to really try to make it as collaborative a group as we could. Yeah, that I mean that sounds absolutely amazing. Those those results, I suppose, speak for themselves. Um, yeah. Can I just uh, sort of last question? Uh, I just want to sort of touch upon um, is um, so. What did you find um, were the sort of the, the greatest challenges in doing all of this? Um, I think some of it was holding on within from a service level, so responding to people above us right. um, and having five, five interpreters is, is costly to services yeah. um, and having um, we were only um, kind of allowed to work with interpreters for an hour mm-hmm. so to pay interpreters for an hour of their time um, which is at odds with some of the guidance around working with interpreters in therapy in general, which recommends work, um, having extending work to an hour and a half just for the amount of information that might be lost um, okay. with repeat repetition. Um, which meant we have to be really flexible. Um, we had to really think about what what it what we were putting in into the group and making sure our interpreters were looked after as well. Yeah. Um, and we were trying to offer a bit of a debrief at the end of each um, each group. Um, I, and I think some of it was trying to present a case on balance of what what it meant that we were booking interpreters, but we were trying to be pragmatic, so mm. people would share interpreters. Um, but also, there were times, like, if we were, we made the argument that if we were offering individual appointments with one interpreter where young people were less likely to attend, that mm-hmm. would be a lost resource, whereas this was turning into um, a resource young people were really making use of. Yeah. Um, and we, while we measured engagement as a big outcome, we also looked at um, their well-being on the strength and difficulties questionnaire, um, and we had... Um, a change difference which was significant with an effect size of 0.8 which right. is a decent effect size for, yeah. for a group we thought and um, so we saw that there was some improvement on their well-being so then people then also felt more comfortable engaging with the service and moved into more formally evidence-based interventions like trauma-focused therapy for PTSD um, and so we're, we're really able to make sense of how they were yeah. um, so we we kept trying to 
to make an, an informed case for it, both yeah. from how, the feedback that people gave. So we, we did a focus group maybe every, every three months with young people to see how they felt the group was going and what they wanted to cover next, um, but also what what we were seeing in young people and the impact on their education, on their sleep, um, on their isolation and like thinking the friendships that the group formed. Yeah. Um, and their, their mental health, I thinking mean, about how the shift it made for them. Yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing, you know, the, the amount of uh, work you've, you've put into this. And uh, and definitely, like I said, you know, from, from what you've said, it clearly shows that, there, you know, there is an effective way um, of adapting therapies to um, to, to diverse groups, I suppose. Um, just the last quick question I want to ask you before um, yeah. um, we kind of move on um, is... Um, what would be your advice then for aspiring clinical psychologists who, you know, may have to work with diverse clientele going forward? Um, I would say remember that you have skills mm-hmm. to work with this with with diverse client groups. Mm-hmm. They 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 are still humans, and a lot of the theories we we think about apply to humans regardless of their their cultural background. Right. Um, but thinking about how information is communicated mm-hmm. wouldn't need to be would, would is something that needs to be thought about, and also to listen yeah. um, and to to hear where a person is starting from and go, and meet a meet a person where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a really great um, way of, of learning as a person in in mental health. I feel like I've learned so much from people from different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so while there's the, the joy of, of helping potentially there's also learning about the world that we live in and the, the, the bad that's amazing thank you so much Florian. you've been absolutely amazing and I've loved listening to everything that you've done um, and I think you know you, you've, you're you clearly doing a great job with you know with young people um, who obviously face a lot of trauma um, coming into sort of different um, different settings and different um, countries Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure having a chat. <laughs> thank you. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I do want to apologize for the audio quality, but I'm hoping that you were able to really appreciate the great work that Gloriane's been doing um, and how she's gone about adaptive therapy for young people from refugee and asylum seeker communities. So next time you're going to be joined by Kate. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.